and what it declares. And as we've been hearing all morning so far, it tells us with clarity that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive. And man, I just cannot wait to open our Bibles and continue to dive into the truths and the facts of Jesus' resurrection. I recognize that on Easter Sunday, uh, many people in our culture are, are just more interested about things of God and, and exploring the Christian faith and navigating their spiritual lives. And if you are that person today, man, I'm just thrilled you're with us, for real. From the bottom of my heart, I'm glad you're here. Church family, are you glad those folks who are exploring Christian faith are here today? We're glad you're here because we know that there is hope in Jesus. And we also know what it's like to feel stuck. We know what it's like to be in life and feel like you can't get out of where you're at. Y'all with me on that? When I think about being stuck, I think about a story that was on the headlines a couple of weeks ago about a ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal. It's called the Ship Ever Given. It's a mega ship. Now, if you didn't know about this story, let me tell you about it. The Suez Canal connects the Mediterranean Sea with the Red Sea, and the Red Sea flows into the Arabian Sea, which ultimately gives access to all the oceans in all the world. The Suez Canal is a vital port or vital canal that allows trade to take place throughout all of North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. But on March 23rd, this mega ship that's called the Ever Given got stuck in the canal on an angle and no ship was able to pass along that canal because that ship had blocked it. Now, let me explain this mega ship to you because we don't use the word mega ship very easily. This mega ship is the size of the Empire State Building. It is a quarter mile long. That's the equivalent of four football fields. The Ever Given is able to carry 20,000 20-foot containers. You know those containers you see on the trains when you're stuck there on, on, a, on Grand Avenue in Harlem? You know, you're trying to get through there? Those trains, those carts? It carries 20,000 of those. It got stuck because there were high winds, a desert storm, in fact, a sandstorm that blew through the canal, causing the ship to lose control. And a ship of that size carrying that weight with those kind of winds loses control a little easier than expected. And there it was, got lodged for six days. And what happened is billions of dollars stood there in the canal waiting to pass. Many people expect us to be recovering globally from that for weeks. Now, what's wild about the ever given is that it actually has a lot of parallels to your life and my life. You ever feel stuck like that? You ever feel stuck because of the weight you carry on your shoulders? You ever feel stuck by the winds of adversity that have come through your life? And you feel like, man, I can't navigate this. And you find yourself essentially shipwrecked in life. See, the ever given has a lot of parallels to you and me this Easter morning. Some of you feel stuck today because of fear. You don't have control of what's in your future. Some of you feel stuck today because of regret, perhaps because of choices you've made leading to shame. Some of you feel stuck today because of that shame, wishing things were different or Because of doubt, you feel stuck because you doubt God. You doubt yourself. You doubt others. You doubt the existence of your life. 
And ultimately, at the root of feeling stuck is something called sin. It is when all of us born into this turn away from God and what we do, what we say, or how we act, or what we think. Basically, it's ingrained in who we are. And then like the ever given, we are stuck in that canal of life. And sin has us there, feeling purposeless, directionless, meaningless, and lacking significance. Now you're saying this is getting really depressing on a really exciting day. What are you doing with this? Well, what I want us to understand is there's a reason for Easter. There's a reason why Jesus came. There's a reason why he had to go to the cross. And it's a deal with the sin that causes us to get stuck because ultimately what it does is separate us from God. And life apart from Jesus then, apart from him, is lived in vain. It's meaningless. But this Easter morning, I want you to know that because Jesus is alive, your life can go from a life lived in vain to having life in your veins. You can go from a life that lacks meaning to a life filled with purpose because of Jesus. I love how my brother Joshua Resto shared with us uh, just a few moments ago how that life of meaningless and directionless, he was stuck quite literally in life, but how God through faith in Jesus has given him purpose. How many of you know that Jesus is still in the business of doing that? So if you're stuck today, you're at the right place. You're at the right address. I want you to join me, if you can, in the Bible, in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a printed Bible, it's going to be on the far right of your Bible in the New Testament. On your app, it'll be there in the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today, we're going to survey the first 21 verses of this chapter. And what we're going to see today is that God has a compelling word for all of us. A word that brings us out of being stuck. A word that frees us from our sin and its consequences. A word that allows us to have a relationship with God. Now, as you get ready to turn there, I want to just break down real briefly what we're about to look at. See, the book of 1 Corinthians was a letter, actually, written to a church in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. And the Christians there were struggling with their faith in a variety of ways, but one of those ways was many of them were doubting whether or not they themselves would be raised from the dead after they die. Now, that's an interesting thing to bring up on Easter Sunday when we talk about Jesus being raised, but there's a correlation. You see, the Christian faith teaches... That because Jesus is alive, all who put their faith in him believe that he died on the cross for their sins, that we too, when we die, one day will be raised to life and spend eternity with God. But in the early church, there were some who just said, man, that sounds good, but I don't know if I believe that. And this chapter speaks to and addresses that question. Now, if you can, would you stand with me as I read these opening verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Because what Paul does is he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God could do this lesser thing of raising you, he could do it because he did a greater thing of raising Jesus. And if he, did G- he raised Jesus, he can raise you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
If, notice the condition, you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Can you say first importance? What I also received. What is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then Those who have fallen asleep, who've died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. You may be seated, church. That's a zinger right there. What Paul lays out in defending the fact of the resurrection of us as believers in the future days, he does so by appealing to Jesus. And the first thing he tells them is that there's a compelling message that he's preached, a compelling message. And so he essentially wants them to listen in. It's a compelling message for you and I, and we are called to listen in. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which I received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. This gospel is not a music genre. This gospel is not just a good sound. It's a message, and this message is one that allows them to be saved, and they are being saved. Notice the tense of that verb. They are being saved. It is a continual action. It is something that's taking place now. He essentially is telling them this, that because of Jesus, they have been saved from their sins. They are being saved from their sins, and they will be saved from their sins. And he says, this is for you if, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Basically, he wants them to know is that if you have genuine faith, you're going to hold on to this faithful message. It's one thing to say, get excited and say, I believe Or it's one thing to be excited and say, yes, that's cool, that sounds good. But what happens when we forget it the next day? 
when it doesn't change our lives. Paul says this, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, he says, unless you believed in vain. You see, an affirmation about Jesus raising from the dead that doesn't affect our lives is ultimately an affirmation that's in vain. It's meaningless, purposeless, it's useless. And Paul wants them to make sure that they understand that there's a compelling message and they've got to listen into it. Well, what's this message ultimately? Well, he tells them there in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He said, I've passed on this message to you. You know, in the Middle Eastern first century culture, it's a highly oral culture. Things got passed down by word of mouth. In fact, many of the things we know about from antiquity have been passed on from generations through word of mouth, and they were brought on paper eventually. Now, truly, a lot of myths and legends, you know, Greek gods, Roman gods, we've, we've heard these things that have been passed on through oral tradition that we got put in writing. But what makes different those stories from what Paul is proclaiming is that he stands here writing as a witness as one who is laying out evidence, making a truth claim. He's making it clear, this is not a myth. This ain't a fairy tale. This isn't some folklore. I'm teaching you fact. I deliver to you as of first importance. What is this thing of first importance? What is the most important thing he could tell them? I want you to think about that. What's the most important thing you could tell somebody? Let that sink in for a moment. If you got one thing to tell somebody before you die, what would that one thing be? Now, a lot of us might think, well, there's a lot of important things to say. They might not be the most important, but there's important things to say. Like, it's important for me to let my kids know that Michael Jordan is the GOAT in basketball, right? It's important for me to teach my children that you don't put ketchup on a hot dog if you're from the shy. It's upon me to let them know that Lou Malnati's has got the best pizza in Chicago and the tourists like Giordano's. Yeah, I just called you out. They root for black and white in baseball. But there's other important things I tell my sons. I want my sons to know that their identity is in Jesus. I want my sons to understand integrity and courage. I want to tell them I love you. I want my sons to know how to treat a woman. I want to teach my daughter important things about her identity found in Christ and what he has done. I want her to know true beauty from the inside out. I want her to understand strength and bravery and hear me tell her I love her, to be a good friend. There's a lot of important things that we can pass on to other people. But if I had one thing to tell my children, it wouldn't be those things in and of themselves. The most important thing that Paul passed to them is the most important thing that I'm about to pass to you. And it's the most important thing that you can pass to anybody. What is it? He says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to people. That is of first importance. 
If there's one thing you could tell anybody, that's what they need to know because that makes a difference, not just in this life, but for all of eternity, church family. Christ died for our sins. The name Christ is a, in the Jewish word is Messiah. He is the one to deliver us from the tyranny of sin and death and Satan. He didn't just die for sin, as we were told on Good Friday by our brother Kerry. That would have been true, but he died for our sins. It's personal. He didn't just die for my sins, but he died for your sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried. Don't overlook that phrase, he was buried. See, it's important for us to remember that Jesus was indeed buried. There is a tomb. There was a place that he was laid. It becomes, it becomes the headquarters, ground zero for the Christian faith, that he was buried. And the fact that he was buried tells us that there's a real tomb where a real man once day, laid and the real man was really dead but that he was raised. In accordance with the scriptures, he was raised on the third day. That fact is why you're here today, church. That's, that's why you are here today, because the tomb is empty. He was crucified on Friday, day one. Saturday, what an awful day that must have been, day two. And then early Sunday morning, day three, he was raised from the dead. But look what else Paul says. He did this in accordance with the scriptures. Twice he mentions that phrase in verses 3 and 4. What he's appealing to is the first half of your Bible called the Old Testament. What Paul is saying is what happened on that cross and our first Easter Sunday is precisely what God said would happen. 700 years before Jesus came on the scene as a man... Isaiah the prophet said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 700 years before Jesus, those words are spoken. Another 200 years before that, King David wrote this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One, the Messiah, the Anointed One, see corruption. He would raise from the dead. Paul's saying this, in accordance with the scriptures, according to what God's been saying since the Garden of Eden, Jesus did what God said he'd do. That's a compelling message. And we have to listen in to it. And with this message, there also, though, is compelling evidence for us to examine. That there is a reason why we believe this. There's a reason why we worship Jesus and we don't worship Zeus. There's a reason why we believe that this story from antiquity is true and other stories are false. What is the evidence? What is the compelling evidence? Well, Paul says here in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Peter. Peter was the first of the disciples, first of the twelve on the scene at the tomb. See, Mary Magdalene was the first one that Jesus appeared to, and the other women. But Mary was given the responsibility of taking that message to Peter and the others. And when Peter heard it, he ran to the tomb. And there, Jesus would appear to him. Paul goes on to write that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, the other twelve apostles. 
Jesus shows up one day in the room, and they're like, what is going on? It's real. And Jesus says, touch my hands. Look at the wound in my side. It's me. Now give me something to eat so I can eat in front of you. I'm alive. He appeared to the 12. Then he appeared. I love verse 6. Then he appeared to more than how many? What does it say there in your Bibles? 500 people saw the risen Jesus at one time. Let that sink in. 500 people saw him simultaneously after he had been crucified. They saw him alive. And just in case Paul's like, you know what, maybe you're doubting that he actually did that. What does he add here? Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What he's saying is here, you don't believe me? Go ask them. Go, go, go to Jerusalem. They're there still. Most of them are still alive. Some have died, yes, but most of those 500 are still alive. Go and ask them. It says, then he appeared to James, which many believe is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother. Then to all the apostles, the other followers of Jesus. And then in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, there are those who saw Jesus, and that's compelling evidence. But this last piece that Paul's saying is, not just those who saw, but what he did to those who saw. And here Paul gets personal. He gets autobiographical here. He appeared to me, Paul says. And he says, I am one who is untimely born. He appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's like, I'm untimely born because I was a little late to the game. I was the last that Jesus revealed himself to. My, my, my salvation came because Jesus met me on the road to Damascus. Jesus threw this man named Saul off of his high horse. And there Saul, whose name would become Paul, surrendered his life to Jesus. What happened to him? A man who was going to Damascus to persecute the church now went there to preach about the Jesus of the church. That's compelling evidence. And Paul goes on to say that because of this, he has worked all his might that people would know and that they themselves would believe. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's not just trying to defend the Christian faith, although he is doing that. Again, he's working toward an argument to teach them about their resurrection. But in so doing, he lays out evidence that is so compelling that we have to examine. Because for 2,000 years, there have been those who have opposed the Christian faith. There have been many people, brilliant minds, who've done all they can to undermine this Jesus that we worship. Some have said that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, and that is why the tomb is empty. But as I was sharing with a brother this week, church history tells us, and the Bible tells us, that 11 of the 12 apostles were killed for their faith. And the apostle John was the one who was not killed. But history tells us that they had poured boiling oil over him and put him as a prisoner on the island of Patmos to die in isolation. He was tortured so badly that the early church considered him a martyr for the faith. If the disciples stole the body, that means 12 people agreed to a lie that they all would die for. That don't happen, church. That doesn't happen. Some have said, well, Jesus didn't really die. 
Maybe he was placed in a tomb and those tombs were carved into stone and, and in that tomb it was cool. And so on that stone his body was resuscitated by the environment around him. But how did he get out? Did, did he? Can, can, a, can a soldier roll this stone out for me? Furthermore, who put him on the cross? Who nailed him to a cross? None other than Roman executioners who have one job, and that was to kill people. I think they would know if a guy they crucified wasn't dead. In fact, the Bible tells us they pierced his side with a spear and blood and water flowed, sealing his death. Some have said, well, maybe they had the wrong tomb. They went to a tomb that was empty already. Well, the Bible tells us that the women followed him to the tomb, so they knew where it was at, and so Mary Magdalene knew where to go. Furthermore, that wasn't Jesus' tomb. Whose tomb was it? It belonged to a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who no doubt bought that tomb with his own money, and I'm sure he would have said, hey, look, guys, your GPS led you to the wrong place. They were at the right place. Still others say that the 500 simultaneously hallucinated when they saw Jesus. They hallucinated individually, collectively, and simultaneously. 500. Nah, that does not happen. But perhaps the most compelling of all this evidence is what wasn't done. You see, the Jewish leaders put Jesus to that cross because they hated him. They hated his claims. They hated who he was. They hated his following. And that is why they made it their endeavor to kill Jesus and put him on a cross. And so when the word began to get around that this Jesus was risen from the dead, all they needed to do was one thing to squash this Christian movement. All they needed to do was one thing to silence all of his followers. One simple thing. You know what that was? All they needed to do was present a body. All they needed to do was roll the stone and pull out Jesus and say, look, he's here. He's dead. Go on with your way. But they didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Well, because the tomb was empty, church. There was nobody there. There is compelling evidence. And so we need to examine it. And this evidence flows from a compelling message. But the compelling message and the compelling evidence ultimately brings for you and me a compelling ultimatum. Where do we stand in relation to what is being said here? You see, what Paul ultimately says here is, if Jesus has raised from the dead, there are essential implications of that fact. Among those things is, do you believe? Do you believe? Today, I pray that you would say yes to that. I think sometimes in our lives, life gets so complex and difficult. Some of you have been hurt, maybe by people who claim the name of Jesus, and it's been so hard to affirm this fact. And maybe you've pushed this ultimatum in the back of your mind, and you've, you've kept it down, but at the same time, you know God has been pursuing you. I want you to know that people are flawed. The church is flawed, but Jesus is not. He is alive, he has conquered death, and he wants you to believe in him. That's why Paul opened up saying, 
I preached to you this gospel which you received and which you are being saved if you hold fast. And basically what we're telling you today is hold on to this truth that on that cross your sin was put on Jesus. And then when he died, he defeated the penalty that you deserved. He took it for you. And then he defeated death so you too could be raised. That's why Paul goes this route when people said, I'm not sure if we're going to raise from the dead one day. He says, if you don't raise, that means Jesus wasn't raised. But I'm telling you, Jesus was raised, therefore you will be raised. (laughs) Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is still in the tomb, if Jesus is dead, you are in your sin, separated from God, and eternal separation in hell is our destiny. On top of that, in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. People should look at us with just sorrow. But then he lays out the facts in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because Jesus has been raised, you and I will be raised. Man, I pray that today would be the day for some that you would put your faith in Jesus and this forgiveness would be declared unto you and that you then can have the sure hope of eternal life that because of Jesus, you will be raised to life one day. Turn from your sins and turn to him. That's how you get unstuck. The ever-given ship was stuck for six days and you might say I've been stuck for six months, six years, 16 years, 60 years. But the ever-given ship is uniquely named ever given. Because <laughs> Jesus' body has been ever given unto you. Always there to offer you forgiveness through faith in him. This past week I heard about, in, in Egypt, a parade that they were doing. You guys hear about this? They were doing an ancient mummy parade. Essentially, there were 22 pharaohs, 20, 18 kings and four queens, that have, are in, encased in their mummies, that the Egyptian um, government wanted to move from the Egyptian museum to a new location three miles away. And what the, the, the Egyptian leaders decided to do was make this an event. And they, had, they pulled out all the bells and whistles, the light shows, uh, the dancers, the singing. And each of these tombs, these, these, these caskets, if you will, with these mummies inside, had their own like tank-looking vehicle. And they drove these things down the streets of Cairo, in celebration of the pharaohs of yesteryear. One Egyptologist says, by doing it like this, with great pomp and circumstance, the mummies are getting their due. These are the kings of Egypt. These are the pharaohs. And so it is a way of showing respect. But what jumped out to me is what another Egyptologist, an archaeologist, a well-known one said. He said this, the parade is very important, not only for Egypt, but for the whole world. Because 22 kings will walk in the streets of Cairo as magic. 22 kings will walk? I saw the video. No pharaohs walked that street. No no pharaoh got out of that tomb. There, There was no magic there. There was no miracle. They paraded corpses. On Easter Sunday, the Christian church does not parade a corpse. On Easter Sunday, 
The church doesn't just look back in the glory days of yesteryear. No, we don't do that. We look back, yes, but we look ahead because there is no lifeless limb that we look at. There's no crucified corpse. There's no breathless body. There is a risen Savior, and he is the one that we parade today. This is the message that we parade today. It's a compelling message with compelling evidence that gives a compelling ultimatum. So I want to drive this home for you. I want you to imagine that first Easter, that first Resurrection Sunday. Imagine the hours just before joy erupted. It's Sunday morning, early in the morning. It's still dark. It's dawn, the morning sun concealed, the tomb is sealed, the earth is still. A dead Jesus lies behind the stone, dark, alone, and quiet and cold. Uncertainty-filled minds, like rain clouds, the spring sky. What would happen after hope was crucified? Time passed by. Friday, Saturday, and now it's Sunday. Imagine the moments before joy erupted church. It's Sunday morning, early morning, but now it's only kind of dark. Lights on the horizon, the concealed sun now more revealed. The seal tomb gave way to the quake. The earth shakes, stones rolled from its place. Peek inside, the body is not in its place. Imagine the moment when joy erupted, when death lost its grip, when sin met its match, when Satan had to sit and it was Jesus' time to stand. Imagine, Father on the throne, face glowing, that's my boy. The spirit eager to announce with unparalleled joy. It's Sunday morning, early in the morning. When the sun rose, the sun rose. He was concealed, but now he's revealed. He was dead on arrival. Now he's the unrivaled one from the dead. The women see him first, burst with tears. The 12 see him next, vanquishing their fears. He lived an extraordinary life. He died an extraordinary death. He conquered an extraordinary foe. He passed the extraordinary test. Have you seen him yet? Take a peek in the tomb, and like a spring rose, let your faith bloom. Because Jesus lives, you can go from living life in vain to having life in your veins, church. Today we parade, church. Today we parade not a lifeless limbs, not a breathless body, not a crucified corpse. Today we parade a risen Savior, and Jesus is alive. He is risen, church. He is risen, church. Come on. He is risen, church. And that's compelling. That's compelling. So go this Easter Sunday and go on a parade, church. Child of God, go on that parade. And make sure people know in the streets of Chicago. Let them know in West Palm Beach. Let them know throughout this world. Parade those streets until we parade the streets of gold. Because this Jesus who rose from the dead will raise us from the dead. And we will be with him forever, church family. Hallelujah. Yeah.
Father in heaven, we give you all the glory this morning. God, we give you all the praise today that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, silenced the boast of sin and grave. He shut it up, and I praise you for it, Lord. God, I pray that today our faith will be ignited in a way it hasn't been in some time. God, I pray that today for those who have yet to put their faith in Jesus, that they would know that this compelling message and evidence and ultimatum is laid before them. God, and I pray that they would surrender their life to Jesus. God, cause faith to rise up, I pray. We praise you for the mighty power of the cross and the empty tomb. I pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Let's rise to our feet, church, and stand in song. Yeah, hallelujah. What a morning, church. What a morning God has given us today. Don't let it stop here. Don't let it stop here. Don't let it get caught up in other things. Yes, there's lots to enjoy today on Easter Sunday. But don't forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go out in that parade, church, and let people know that he is alive. I want to leave you with this blessing before we are dismissed. It says this, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is our God. Those are his promises. And go out in his strength. He is risen. Amen. You are dismissed, church family.